This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are going to be talking about a concept that is both new and old. It is called agroforestry, um, and my uh, my guest today is Eric Hoffner, an old friend, uh, an environmental journalist and photographer, and an editor at mangabay.com, which is an online global news source on conservation and science. Highly recommend it, folks. Uh, before he joined Manga Bay, uh, Eric was at Orion for 13 years as a columnist, photographer, podcaster, and outreach coordinator. If you don't know Orion, the literary journal of the environment, uh, you should, um, and you should subscribe. And Eric's work has also appeared in The Guardian, News Deeply, World Arc, and Yale Environment 360, the National Geographic News, Watch uh, on Earth, The Sun, and Earth Island Journal. Thank you for joining me today today, Eric. Your CV has grown exponentially since we met. <laughs> well, you know, every time you write for a new outlet, it grows a little. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. 10 years, you've done a lot of work in the last 10 years. So first of all, tell people just briefly what Manga Bay is, because it is a very cool journal, and I'm not sure it gets the love that it should be getting. Sure. Manga Bay is a 20-year-old nonprofit environmental news service. We have 30 million readers globally um, wow. who read our reporting that goes out daily in about nine languages. But we do that by way of four bureaus. We have bureaus here in the U.S., in India, Latin America, and Indonesia. So we're producing in three languages every day, but then we translate a lot of our stories into other languages and then republish them. And we're a Creative Commons publisher, so what we do is try to get um, everything from the, you know, Guardian uh, to Publa Metro in Lima to republish our stories. Because mm -hmm. what we found was a lot of um, uh, newspapers, especially in the developing world, don't have environmental beat reporters. So we're making uh, original and um, good reporting on people's regional environments available. So um, that's what we do. We have about 50 staff and 
most of the time zones around the world. We don't have an office or anything. Um, we have some staff writers. We have a podcast producer, and that's me. Um, um, and uh, we also have uh, mostly a team of editors who they're the people who work with the freelancers, and the freelancers are the ones who do like most of the writing for us. And uh, I think we have about 350 of them now. So yeah, so wow. our reporting covers the environment. Uh, broadly, but that includes things like agriculture, because that's part of the environment. Um, we sometimes win awards, but mostly we're known for reporting on things that gets uh, like a coal power plant canceled in Malaysia or a company thrown out of the London Stock Exchange, that kind of thing. Um, but recently we had a positive impact for a feature of ours on a dam project in Indonesia. This is a uh-huh. A project proposed in a in a rainforest where a recently discovered orangutan species lives. Um, so somebody read our stories about it in our investigation, and they have an award-winning documentary now, which is really great, called Now or Never. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I I think it's a great journal. I I check into it pretty regularly. Um, it's one of my favorites, and certainly for the international component, because of course. Uh, we don't see a lot of international news uh, about the environment, uh, particularly in faraway places like uh, Indonesia, which is, I think, the last story I did with you was with uh, was about, um, you know, forest management in Indonesia and the fact that, you know, the sort of rise of palm oil and how that is having an impact on Indonesian rainforest. Um, and that yeah, was... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that was a sobering story. Um, yeah, I think Manga Bay is probably the ahead. best... Um, environmental news source you got out there and you know there are others that mm-hmm. do really good coverage daily but they're not on the beat as much as we are on the international uh lens so yeah so thanks katie no definitely doesn't seem like it um but so you have been working on a series about agroforestry uh for manga bay for over a year i mean you're some of the stories go back more than a year maybe even a year and a half um, and agroforestry, as you point out in one of the in an op-ed that you wrote for the Washington Post, uh, is both an, is an ancient practice, but seems to be making something of a resurgence. Um, so, talk about what agroforestry actually means and where it is being used now. Sure. Uh, yes, the uh, the practice is an indigenous one. It's created by in- indigenous groups who. Uh, just understood the wisdom of growing things together, and you know maybe they were forest people who you know eventually would start cultivating things or planting herbs and vegetables underneath the trees that they really liked um, in whatever part of their forest, <clears throat> and then it gave rise to a system, um, and, and and it became more intentional over the uh, years. But you know now. Uh, all these thousands and thousands of years later, they're still the main practitioners globally, although the rest of us are really catching up fast. Um, but what it is is combining trees and shrubs, crops, and even livestock in that kind of system. So you get an output of food, but one that also supports biodiversity because you're giving things places to live, and it builds soil and water tables. Uh, but also it... it sequesters carbon from the atmosphere, which is a topic that everyone's interested in nowadays. Right. And, uh, the practice covers something like a billion hectares globally, according to a new study in Nature. Um, wow. That's the size of Canada for scale. 
Uh, it's mostly along the tropics and subtropics in a kind of a belt around the planet. But uh, that belt sequesters 45 gigatons of carbon, and uh, that figure grows by three-quarters of a gigaton every year. So, But um, for your listeners, the, uh, the best-known example that everyone can think of immediately is shade-grown coffee or chocolate. Um, sure. These are probably the most common examples, but um, in any place it's hot and dry or hot and wet, even like Kenya and Ethiopia, people in our series are talking about how they grow crops, like vegetables and grains, even under canopies of mango or avocado. Um, and these things provide shade from the sun, um, which in the tropics can be really important. You know, you can grow melons like crazy, but if you expose them to the noonday sun in Kenya, you'll have yeah. toast. So that's why it's very, very smart to grow these sort of things under trees with they have a kind of a shaded situation. And also trees bring up moisture from way down below through these tap roots. So uh, there's many reasons why crops and grains and things like that um, really thrive underneath tree canopies. But even in places like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, I sent reporters to these countries that are temperate. Um, and, the, you know, the, we found walnut and apple trees grown in intermixed forests, and underneath them cattle and pigs are foraging for acorns and all different kinds of things like this, fallen apples. So, yeah, we had mm -hmm. uh, over 24 stories for the series, and um, it, uh, it's been really fun. And, you know, I think as the series continues, we'll probably focus more on temperate agroforestry as well. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it seems like it's, you know, the sort of the point of it is to kind of indicate that there is a different way to produce food than the current model that we use, which is to, you know, as we'll discuss in a minute, uh, planting fence row to fence row. And you made a really good point in the op-ed that you published in the Washington Post that typical remedies for carbon sequestration often involve massive upfront costs. And um, although you don't say it, um, there's probably some untold collateral impact uh, in terms of energy use. Um, but you describe a scheme announced by a company called Carbon Engineering. And I, I found their plan almost laughable, um, except that clearly they're, they've got money and they're doing it. So can you, t <laughs> can you just talk about like one of these like high tech, you know, the high tech ideas versus this kind of almost slow food approach, you know, or slow energy approach to, um, to food production? Sure. Yeah, th this is one of a number of tech fixes we've heard about and breathlessly have been reported upon that would take carbon out of the air and, and turn it into rocks or into fuel. Um, carbon engineering wants to turn their their material into fuel, I believe, for something like $100 a ton or something. Huh. That's, that's like their gold standard. They're going to reach that. But, you know, this is all, at this point, uh, bench science. It's not a proven technology. It's not oh. known if these sort of things are scalable. You know, they're right now they're talking about they're they're showing us big um, drawings of of banks of fans that will draw air in and push the carbon dioxide across a, a membrane, and the carbon will come out and you'll make a fuel out of it. But you know, they only can do this in the lab, 
And so the question becomes, you know, where where do all the materials for building these enormous fans and membranes and all these things come from? Um, those yeah, really and how much does it cost in terms relief. of energy to produce them? Yeah, and it's like, yeah, what are you extracting right. in order to make the fans, for example? I mean, isn't that a lot of metal that needs to go into that? You know, it's just... Yeah, <laughs> like life cycle cost analysis is what we call it, you know, and you can't, it, it, these things won't just appear magically. Um, right. So, yeah, I, I argued in the Washington Post that we probably do need schemes like this, uh, but, you know, in addition to things like this, can't we also fund things like agroforestry? You know, get Bill Gates gave carbon engineering something like $5 million. Uh, if he gave agroforestry $5 million, that would really be something. Um, yeah, because and that's a drop in the bucket way. for Bill Gates. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, it, agroforestry sequesters large amounts of carbon, while feeding people, it's already doing it, you know, and um, the costs for doing this are like seeds, tools, education, you know, like milling Labor. machines, roasting yeah. machines, you know, like stuff we already have. Um, right. The, the costs are fairly low. So that's what I was arguing in the post piece, which was, can't we, uh, can we have both? Yeah, um, right, right. <laughs> can we yeah. can we focus on something besides high tech? It's like so weird yeah. that we have all these methods. And I mean, this goes back to talking to somebody like Elliot Coleman or Wendell Berry even about, you know, just basic crop science, you know, like, can we get away from the high tech and back to something that's a little less so that seems to be more in line with what the planet requires or needs to stay healthy. And I think that, uh, you know, people have overthought agriculture to the point that we're you know we're poisoning ourselves now but um i want to talk more about the because you the 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 sort of penult the last uh, article that you published was about the world agroforestry congress and that was very well attended um and it took place in montpellier so you got to go to france for this which is kind of a cool perk but who who was at this conference like who is what was the american presence like if any uh, there were a hundred people from the U.S. there, in fact. People oh, yeah? from extension offices at University of Iowa to the Forest Service, which actually has an agroforestry division. Cool. Um, but also uh, permaculture activists and people who run research projects um, in the Midwest. It was very interesting. Yeah, we got together for... For, um, for beers one night, and it was fun to talk around the table what we were doing. But yeah, I can imagine. That was just the one slice of the people there. There was over 1,300 in the final count uh, folks from all around the world who came in. It was a lot of people doing the science, but also implementing agroforestry, but a fair amount of NGO reps were there, and... The interesting thing to me uh, was the number of leaders from business and finance who were there, which, I, as I understand it, is something uh, somewhat new. But for three days, we discussed the latest science. Um, there were 600 new studies by people there who were posted up on the walls, which is pretty incredible. Wow. And the way it's being implemented was discussed. But it was great just to see people learning from each other in real time and 
you know, sharing, you know, here, these are the, the new nuts that we're growing and roasting for distribution mm-hmm. from Papua New Guinea, for example, um, and here's what they taste like, and here's my business card in case you think you can distribute this in your country, you know. Uh, there are tangible things like that that can come out of this conference um, that, you know, might lead to more markets for people and, and you know, further implementation of it uh, globally. Right, right. So, um, I, you know, it sounds like there were a lot of people who were already doing practicing agroforestry to a certain extent. So what, what I was wondering is like, you know, it makes a lot of sense to pursue this model in, you know, tropical zones. But as we mentioned earlier in the show just now, what about places like the United States or Western Europe where I know you haven't, France you has, has some examples of agroforestry, but... What would it take, do you think, to to really generate some major interest in this country in uh, new methods like this, or old methods, Mm. I guess? (laughs) Good question. Yeah, well, we have things like food forests popping up in cities like Seattle, and permaculture practitioners create similar projects in a variety of places. But, you know, what it looks like in a temperate zone is generally different than what uh, we picture from the shade-grown coffee situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, typically what it's, what it looks like is, um, rows of, of trees with, uh, grains or, uh, vegetables growing in between them. Um, but it's the same sort of thing as with the tropical agroforestry where the crops are benefiting from, uh, the trees that are nearby that are supplying nutrients and moisture, but also shade as needed to some of these things as, uh, you know, growing conditions in this country are warming up. But, yes. uh, yeah, so it's both <clears throat> alley cropping, and you typically see, you know, like, things like apple trees or hazels or things that fix nitrogen like locusts grown in long rows, and there's a tractic, tractor-wide um, alley between each of them, so you can drive down there and harvest your alfalfa your your hay or your peas or whatever you've got there. Uh-huh. Um, but also uh, silvopasture is a, is a temperate application, and this is a different kind of agroforestry, but it's where you're growing a, um, a forest of useful trees where your cattle can um, roam around and eat the grass that grows more lushly underneath um, a light canopy than it does in the direct sun a lot of times, you know, yeah, especially sure. in places you know where where rainfall isn't as uh, as uh, heavy as it is in the northeast all the time lately it seems. But yeah, so right. silver pasture actually is a is as powerful a project as um, agroforestry because in part you know the grass grows well under there, but also you know. Cows like to loaf, and they like to rest, and they like to get out of the sun. And a a cow that's able to do that, or other kinds of uh, livestock, they are more, they're less stressed, and they're able, they actually produce really uh, great products. So yes, that's that's another thing that we see. Yeah, I mean that's something that feedlots, you know, struggle with is trying to provide enough shade. So, I mean, that's a major problem with the way we grow cattle in this country. And, of course, pigs, industrially produced pigs, never go outside, but it would be nice if they could. And this seems like, you know, of course, they do like to root up a tree. I've seen what pigs can do in a forest, and it's not pretty. Yeah, you have to keep them moving. (laughs) 
you do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so one of the reasons we, this conference was in France for the first time is because they wanted to showcase that temperate agroforestry is a thing. So one of the things huh. I was able to do was go out to a farm that is a mix of researchers and local growers who are growing things like peas and barley and wheat in rows between uh, trees like apple and ash, you know, and the apples uh-huh. for fruit or the ash trees for um, for uh, lumber. But right. um, interestingly, the one I wasn't uh, thinking I was going to see there was grapes. Um, obviously, southern France, all of France, you picture grapes. Um, and uh, this area, no different. But uh, what's interesting is the um, they're growing long rows of grapes on trellises between rows of pines because really? these pines are adding enough shade to the area that um, the, the grapes ripen better because what they've been finding in recent years is the with the climate warming up, their yeah. grapes ripen too fast in the season and they don't have the requisite sugars and other good stuff in them by the time they're ready to harvest. So what these growers are struggling with is slowing it down. So adding a little bit of filtered shade really helps. And the other thing about the pines is that they're a place where uh, helpful aphids and bugs that that uh, are predators on bad aphids, they live in the pines. They like the pollen. And Uh so it's got all these um, uh, added benefits. So the growers have said, you know, they're they're finding this is useful, and the the pine trees provide pinyon nuts. But one thing that oh, they yeah. weren't expecting was frost protection, um, because like here, lately in the last few years, we've been getting these late cold killing frosts. Right. And uh, in 2017, there was one of these frosts in southern France, and everyone lost all their grapes. Um, wow. There was no harvest, yeah, except for this farm where they had these rows of trees in between the grapes, and they just, you know, the, the trees just kept in this little pillow of warmer air. You know, maybe it was one or two degrees warmer, but it didn't matter. The grapes right. didn't freeze, and they got a crop. So Amazing. You know, that's applicable to this area, you know. Like, we grow a lot of grapes on Long Island and other regions, upstate New York. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. I think yeah, it makes so a I lot think of it's sense. Very applicable. Very applicable. So um, let me ask you this: What is the timeline on creating a set scenario like this? Like, I mean, trees take a while to grow. So if we were to say gear this up, uh, what would it? What do you see? I mean, look. Okay, say so, say we look at a developing country that's starting to implement this practice. How long does it take for their for the whole thing to kind of come into fruition? Is it, you know, one year, five years, ten years? What kind of a timeline do we look at? Three to five years. Uh, And what is typically Mm -hmm. done in a lot of these zones is to grow, you know, start your your, uh, timber trees and your coffee trees and your other things at the same time with bananas and Uh get the bananas going. And those things will be giving you a crop before anything else and providing that shade that everything else needs initially. And eventually the bananas will be shaded out. They won't even be able to grow in there. So that's uh-huh. one of the, the typical uh, techniques to get started. And, I mean, and that's, you know, that's really the 
kind of the gold standard for how to begin an agroforestry situation rather than, you know, like some people think, oh, that means we have to cut down the forest to plant agroforests. No, you don't. You don't do that. You know, you start with, you know, your farm that's failing or that, you know, soil is really degraded or whatever. You know, the FAO says there's something like a billion uh, hectares of degraded or heavily degraded agricultural land globally. And these are the kind of places yeah. where you can start planting those bananas and, and windrows and, and the other things all around it, and, and then seeing this whole thing grow up because, you know, in the sort of temperature regimes and the, you know, the no frost ever, things can grow year-round, and it can really, things can really take off. But your point is well taken. Um, and, you know, but here in the Northeast, you know, like you can imagine, yes, it will take a really long time uh, for my first crop, but one of the folks I met in uh, France was someone who's working with this organization out of New York. Um, it's a venture that's actually built on the solar leasing model, as I understand it. It's called Propagate, and they what they're doing is working with farmers who want to get into this and uh-huh. kind of giving them the seed money in advance to put things like rows of apple trees on their farms, right? So it's like you want a solar panel for your house, but I'm not going to pay $20,000 for it, but this company's going to come in and they're going to buy it and I'm going to lease it back, you know, and eventually they um, share the profits of, of this sort of thing. So that's huh, their model. And they're model. fairly new, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you should talk to them sometime. They're based in New we York will. and they have projects around Hudson. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to tap into that. Well, let's take a quick break now for a sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Eric Hoffner. We're talking about agroforestry, an ancient practice that is seeing some new uh, interest. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. And we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm talking today with uh, Eric Hoffner, an environmental journalist of... um, many years acquaintance. Um, We're talking about a series that he's been editing for mangabay.com, an environmental and science newsletter that is available free online. 
Um, you guys made you made the point that a profit motive could be a powerful motivator in adopting an agroforestry method. So um, explain how that would work. Like why why would this be more profitable than say other forms of agriculture? Um, sure. Let me try with the uh, the big picture first to give you a sense. Sure. But there's a this new project called Drawdown, with, and they have a book of 100 of the top carbon uh, sequestering technologies and practices um, ranked, and uh, agroforestry is one of the things that's high on the list, and silvopasture is even higher on that list. And one of the things they do is they go and they vet these different things and talk about, you know, the, also what, what it would take to invest in it, but also what the profits are. And they estimate that to add a, another 19 million hectares of agroforestry globally, they would generate a profit of $710 billion in the next 30 years. And that's with a $26 billion investment. So the, the money that they think you can get out is a huge factor. You know, it's something, um, something much larger than what they're putting in to this. So and that they they this project is very conservative. So those are big numbers, but you know kind yeah. of the the more the, like rubber hitting the road um, kind of examples I can give you is um, these folks that I that I met in France and I you know I was there to chair this conversation on bringing in private investment to agroforestry. What does that look like and who are the players? Yeah. So I had a you know I had a panel discussion that I moderated that included people from the Moringa Fund. And this is a, a vertically oriented company with and it operates like an investment fund in uh, Latin America and in Africa. And they produce products and sell them. And um, it's very, very interesting what they do. And the Moringa tree is their kind of their main staple. It's medicinal, but also has other uses. Um, then there was a cooperative found, uh, that, or foundation that is a huge uh, group of cooperatives that invest in this. But also there was a guy from Nestle, France, on my panel. Uh-huh. He talked about how they're bringing agroforestry into their supply chain for their brands like Nespresso and Nescafe. Really? Because uh, they see well, cause coffee, not only yeah, that. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's shade-grown coffee. There's a premium for that. But also they see that their uh, consumers are asking for this because they're, they're seeing the, uh, the stats on deforestation. You know, companies like mm-hmm. Hershey's recently were, were uh, exposed for having a lot of deforestation in their chocolate um, supply chain, for example. And then there was this other example, this fella um, who, with a foundation in um, France, and he talked about how the companies that they invest in, they... Um, they're working, and they're not on, a, like, a carbon offset model, which is, like, where you get paid a little bit for keeping the trees standing on your land or whatever. Uh-huh. But he's talking about insetting versus offsetting. And that means bringing the, the value of these products directly into your own supply chain. And by doing so, you get to add value to your own crops. So you get the offsetting money, but you also get the bigger part of it is the insetting. You know, you can use that shade-grown coffee to get the better price and to build your brand and all this. Anyway, he had a really interesting um, graph that showed, you know, their research showing that uh, 
doing that, bringing agroforestry in, um, boosts their profits by 68% in some cases versus 10% for carbon offsetting and things like that. Wow. But, yeah, so there are people there, just to round it out a little bit, there are, there are representatives of Mars there. Um, they're looking closely at implementing agroforestry in their supply chains. The, the big chocolate company Mondelez, also yep. Cargill. Um, and Hershey's is in the mix, too, because they got they got such bad press that they're being kind of guilted into looking at this, and they're realizing agroforestry is actually a, a smart way for them to go in terms of responsibility, but also uh, long-term profits. Right. Well, I think, I mean, it seems to me that the long-term profit is what motivates any of these large corporations into looking into alternative forms of agriculture. And, and I know that they are starting to feel the the burn about water and the water issues that will be coming along shortly due to the uh, you know the climate crisis and the fact that you know these companies where they extract coffee and and cacao are the ones that are really the ones that are experiencing the greatest amount of drought so if they don't figure this stuff out they're not going to have a crop with which to generate their you know dividends to their shareholders so they they have a very powerful motivation to be invested in this. Um, you know, there was a term, and I, I know you and I went back and forth about this, called Payment for Ecosystems, or PES. Um, and and I just want to get at a sort of, I know it's kind of a, you know, confusing term, but how does one explain to, uh, you know, a, a, a neophyte about this, what an, a payment for ecosystem would mean, because it's not just that you're getting paid for the crop that is generated, but you're also getting paid for, you know, re, uh, returning, uh, you know, sequestering carbon, for returning nutrients to the soil, for uh, retaining moisture in the t- water table. I mean, all of those things somehow get factored in. Can you explain a little bit about how that works or how people view that? Yes. Payment for Ecosystem Services, or PES, is a thing that you see uh, used in the conservation community quite a bit, and it's often related to keeping uh, rainforests intact, and um, mm-hmm. and they, there will be annual payments uh, to communities who you know, protect and guard and all that kind of thing. Usually, oftentimes, they're uh, indigenous uh, groups, and it just gives them extra incentive to keep those illegal miners or whoever it is, out and keep those trees standing to protect the, the rivers and the fish that live there and the tapers and everything else walking around underneath there. But, you mm-hmm. know, um, one of the more obvious examples that we see of, of, of PES is the carbon credits uh, thing. Um, so that's where you get paid for keeping uh, either woody carbon or, or soil carbon intact, and this is a thing that's actually, the soil carbon um, investment is something that's happening quite a bit in California. Um, people paying for grasslands to be kept as such. Um, right. But, you know, extracting that kind of cash is, is I don't know, it's sort of a tricky question. And some of the carbon offsetting schemes have not been able to uh, turn a profit for the people involved, and they haven't worked too well. But, I, you know, just to get back to the local example, this this company starting up in New York, Propagate, I think is really interesting because 
they're working with these growers to help them secure things like carbon credits. But in the main, they're they're in a profit-sharing um, collaboration with these folks. So they would get X percentage of the Baldwin apples, you know, off of those uh-huh. trees or whatever. So, you know, those are the sort of payment for ecosystem services that are more tangible and I think perhaps uh, more likely. Right, right. I mean, would that be something that you could imagine selling uh, as a concept to an American farmer? Because, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just, I I just think about the American food supply and and where that's going. Um, And at the moment, it looks like going to hell. In in a, in a wildfire, um, but American farmers have been trained to you know plant fence row to fence row, and and even in recent years they've been pulling out what they called tree breaks, which were planted right after the dust bowl to try to secure the soil and you know improve uh, water retention, and those are being cut down. And I, I'm just wondering, like you mentioned, that there were some extension or agricultural school personnel at this conference. Uh, what did you think that their takeaway was of this? Like, were they? Do you think they'll be starting to incorporate this concept into their curriculum as, uh, you know, as time goes on? Well, to be clear, these extension people were there because they teach about agroforestry. Um, they were ah, there so, so they're much converted. To learn, at least the ones that I met. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're already on the kind of practitioner side, but but you're right about farmers. I mean, they need to see examples. They're not going to just start doing something because they read about it yeah book, right but and that's why i was asking about the you know the PES because um you know you, you know. got to make it you, you know payment for ecosystems they they have to be paid to do stuff like this and i'm just you know i'm just wondering you know where where we go from here because i mean i think it makes all kinds of sense especially right now when you see these great swaths of the midwest underwater or else, you know, suffering from wildfires, like one or the other, trees would make a big difference in that case, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah. And, you know, there are some well-known examples in places like the U.K. One of the guys on one of my panels has this Whitehall farm where he grows apples and grains in uh, in alley cropped rows like that. And he's been at Mm -hmm. it for uh, going on a, a decade now, I believe. And, you know, nowadays he says, his neighbors come to him and ask him all the questions and 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 how do I get going with this because they see that he's succeeding and it's not a drain on his uh, his workload or his um, his wallet that he's actually making money at it. So right. I mean that's what really works in farm country is, is examples and like even the cover cropping thing. I mean that is finally starting to take off in in the U.S. Which yeah, is pretty to a certain incredible. extent. I think it's only about yeah. six. If if it's six percent of uh, farmers do cover crop, I'd be surprised. But it's still it's definitely better than nothing. It's certainly more improved. You know, increased a lot over the last ten years for sure. Yeah, because guys are seeing other farms uh, implemented and it works. And yeah, you know, right. How much soil would that we their save yields go in the up. Midwest if there were more cover cropping? Um, for example, or more trees mm-hmm. for that matter. Yeah. More trees. What about, um, we got to wrap it up in a few minutes, but I have one more question, which was that given that our uh, model of agriculture has been heavily exported uh, to other co- you know, countries, uh, especially developing countries by NGOs like the World Bank, 
Um, well, I guess they're not. An, well, are they? An, I guess they're an NGO, and other you know organizations like that. How how did you have anybody representing from those big aid organizations uh, who would be interested in pursuing or funding agroforestry practices around the world? Well, the World Bank is actually positive about agroforestry, and they do talk uh-huh. about it. Good. They have a whole division on climate-friendly agriculture, but I haven't seen that their agroforestry division is very robust. They, they're, they're not, not, not that I have seen so far, but, you know, the FAO is also in the mix, and they're, they're I would they think talk so, yeah. about um, that whole idea because it is very farmer-positive. Um, but you're right. In the main, the the main uh, NGOs that are working on this would be uh, universities, but also things like the World Agroforestry Center in Nairobi, which is a, a massive uh, effort to scale this thing up, and they do a lot of research, but also a lot of training. Um, mm-hmm. So they have things like the World Bank and 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 partner governments to places like the World Bank, have good examples in, in the World Agroforestry Center, for example, as to how uh, to bring this thing forward. But, you know, I think really the the growth in agroforestry is going to be pushed um, from the grassroots, as most uh, things are, and that's <laughs> yeah. both growers seeing each other doing it, but also increasingly investors and big companies who who see the the wisdom in this and everyone's saying plant trees you know save the climate well Mm -hmm. we can plant trees and 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 profit from them and eat from them and watch the birds and the bugs and the bees from them and all the other things that we want to keep going too so uh, i think that's where a lot of that is going to go and you know i I saw I dispatched a writer to southern Ethiopia where, you know, a lot of places have adopted that, you know, western, you know, cut it all down and grow a monocrop, but right. um there's areas in southern Ethiopia that have stayed with their agroforestry systems and and these communities love it and they're they're resilient and, you know, they're able to, you know, send their children to school and afford things that they like and um you know, it's working for them. So despite being exported as the Western model, it's not always being picked up. And sometimes agroforestry actually wins out. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's a good note to leave this on. Um, this is your opportunity, Eric Hoffner, to promote yourself shamelessly. And I know you have a website, so go ahead and spill it. <laughs> oh, oh, sure. Yeah, my website is com. You can find links there to my Washington Post op-ed and the the report from the Agroforestry Congress, and my name is spelled with a K, Eric Hoffner. dot com. Anyway, and um, uh, yeah, the and your photography, your excellent photography. Let's not fail to uh, promote that. He's he's yes, a I lens do, for hire. I do some agriculture <laughs> photography. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Beautiful work. And I've got a, a uh, an exhibit near Boston right now, which is exciting. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, where yeah. is that? Remind people. It's uh, just about 30 minutes to the west of Boston in a town called Boylston. It's in a beautiful nature center that was built to also do art exhibits. So you can have a hike cool. and see some art. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Eric. I really appreciate your time. It was a great series. I encourage people to go to mangabay.com and look up agroforestry and then just browse around because they cover so many interesting topics uh, and the archive is really great. So. 
um, take a look at it. And uh, thanks so much to my sponsor. Thank you, Matt, for engineering. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.